session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week um, that I read for tonight, the book of the week for this week is The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emery. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. The last name is E-M-R-E. The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs, and The Birth of Personality Testing. Uh, well, I saw this and was definitely caught my attention because I was curious to know more about the history of personality testing, something that we uh, sometimes want to know or understand ourselves better, so we're looking for these tests. Even you'll find so many tests you can take online, from more serious ones to ones where you can figure out which Disney character or princess you are, but people are very curious to understand themselves better. And sometimes we look to tests to give us some labels, but um, I'm curious to see what this book talks about related to those, because I sometimes have my doubts about personality tests. I don't think that means that they can't be helpful at all, at all but sometimes people give them too much merit, I think. Um, but anyway, I'll read that book and share it with you on next Monday's show. And actually, speaking of testing... The book I'll talk about tonight has a connection with that as well. But that book is The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes by David Robson. The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. And before I get into the book, I really, really enjoyed this book and highly recommend it. Um, it's a great book to get some insights into First of all, even what intelligence is a little bit, and that's the connection with testing that I was talking about. Uh, but also why, you know, it says why smart people make dumb mistakes, but we can all make dumb mistakes, whether or not you consider yourself smart. But it talks about the ways we can make mistakes in our thinking. And also the, the reason for that subtitle is that sometimes people who are even smarter might make certain types of dumb mistakes. But I really enjoyed the book looking at how we think, how we learn, and even how we can actually protect ourselves from making as many of these types of mistakes. So as I mentioned, that connection with testing, the book starts off talking about IQ, or what we usually think of as intelligence, which is uh, the general IQ tests, and there are many of them out there, that have for since their inception been thought of as a way of measuring how successful someone is or their potential. And we've taken that almost for granted that this is just what intelligence is and this is what's important in order to be successful um, because the first tests measured certain things uh, like abstract reasoning or short-term memory as far as how many words you can memorize, some general knowledge, things like that. But this became intelligence. And so we sometimes think that's all there is. And for 
for a long time that's exactly how intelligence was measured. But then there have been other theories of intelligence adding different facets. There's also terms like emotional intelligence, like EQ. And then there's um, Howard Gardner had, I think, was it seven or eight, I think eight different types of intelligence. And some people say that's too many different types. And then if you may break it down that much, then you should have an intelligence for almost everything. Uh, and so what intelligence even means, we don't quite know, or it can mean lots of different things, but definitely we've been affected by the ways it was originally measured and tested to think that this is all intelligence is, and this is going to determine people, people's success and their potential. And so the book starts off as he talks about um, the termites who were the people that, I forgot if it was Lewis uh, Terman, let me look at that word, yes, Lewis Terman, and so he was studying people with exceptionally high IQs. We're talking about some of these kids had IQs like 192, um, but all of them were supposed to be around 140 was the cutoff and above, and following them, and we see that actually, even though you would think they would all be the most successful people in the world, they had various levels, but it wasn't this huge predictor of success. And so there has been a lot of research showing that as much as IQ was developed as this way of measuring intelligence to then tell us who would be successful or not, and even tests like the SAT or the GRE here in the United States are supposed to measure similar types of things, the basic ways we used to think of intelligence. It doesn't seem to predict actual success as well as we would think. And on top of that, even I think more importantly, these things don't measure overall happiness or well-being very well. They don't correlate so well. So why do we make it such a big deal? And to me, that is one issue that um, I think is important to keep in mind. I think of IQ, the traditional intelligence, is very overrated. And we make it this big thing that if someone has a high IQ, then that means they're good for a company or good for a school or good for whatever. But I think it's much more complicated than that. It doesn't measure so much. And I would actually argue that we should give it less intel, uh, importance. <laughs> that was an interesting slip. But less importance. Um, and I think the book in some ways uh, is making that argument as well, that what we traditionally think of as intelligence should not be how we think of people as being smart or not smart to begin with, and also as good anything, partners, people to work with, employees, uh, leaders, all of that. But we're very influenced by this. But as the book gets into, um, there's ways that smart people can make certain types of mistakes, people who are considered smart in the traditional sense, which I thought was quite um, interesting. Um, for example, there's something called disrationalia. I don't know how to say that. It's basically not being rational or having this discrepancy between your um, intelligence and rationality or the traditional intelligence and thinking rationally because there's lots of examples of people who are very intelligent in the traditional sense sometimes having these huge gaps in their thinking as far as rational thinking goes so he shares the story of arthur conan doyle who wrote sherlock holmes and a friendship he had with Harry Houdini. And it's interesting because Harry Houdini was the magician or the illusionist. And so you would think he would be the one that would be more into the paranormal thinking or thinking that we can communicate with ghosts and things of that nature. But actually it was Arthur Conan Doyle who was very much a firm believer of the paranormal. 
even um, at times getting swindled and losing money because he would believe in these things. And even more, uh, I think, ironic is that he wrote the book and created the character Sherlock Holmes, who is known as being this incredibly um, thoughtful thinker. We think of him as someone who was able to figure things out in a very good way, deductive reasoning, but we see here that he himself, the person who created that character at times, was not able to be so um, rational in his thinking. So he was very intelligent in the traditional sense, but there was this gap in his rationality. And we see this a lot of times with people who are highly intelligent, um, including other things like uh, motivated reasoning is another issue that can lead to this intelligence trap, which I thought was interesting. I hadn't heard it termed that way, but it makes a lot of sense. It includes things like the confirmation bias, or what's also called the my side bias, um, which is like looking out for information that confirms what we already believe, and also disconfirmation bias, which is when we tend to discount or be skeptical about evidence against our ways of thinking. But motivated reasoning, as the, the term of kind of sounds like is that we already try to justify what we already believe. So really there's more about to me a feeling we want to believe something. And so we have motivated in how we reason about it. And as human beings, we are so good at coming up with reasons to justify just about anything from doing bad actions to let's say relapsing. If you are someone who is an addict and has been sober or you are thinking about becoming sober, we're so good at coming up with ways of justifying why we should try it or do it one more time, um, to supporting our political beliefs or political candidates, we can come up with amazing ways to justify what they did, why it's okay, um, and why, let's say, if someone we disagreed with did that same thing, it would be unacceptable. But this motivated reasoning is not something that people who are intelligent are immune to. If anything, they might even do it more at times, which might be hard for us to think is true, but that's what he talks about in this book. Another issue is that sometimes people who are experts can fall into particular traps. And there's a, a term um, that he introduced to me, which was earned dogmatism. And so if something is a dogma, that means we take it as a truth, that it doesn't have to be questioned. And sometimes experts can have this feeling that because I've, I'm, I'm an expert, I get all this attention from others and people make me you know, look up to me in this way, I don't have to question and people shouldn't question what I think and what I believe anymore. And unfortunately, this can lead to people holding on to some very bad beliefs or having a hard time changing as new information comes to light or even questioning their own beliefs and thoughts. And of course, this means that we might not realize the limits to our knowledge or when our knowledge might be obsolete. And so an important point to me with this and throughout the book uh, in the second section, he talks about evidence-based wisdom, a field I hadn't, hadn't even heard of before, which I think is really interesting. But one thing that I thought was so interesting is having intellectual humility, which would prevent some of these things, or one aspect of what could prevent some of these things, which is realizing as much as you know, or as much as you're an expert, or even if you've won the Nobel Prize in a certain field, it doesn't mean that what you know about that field is necessarily truth with a capital T, meaning it can't change, and especially doesn't mean it's never going to change as far as we might not advance, and also that you know everything about pretty much everything or even about that field. I was talking to my brother Parham about this, and he was saying that sometimes people who win a Nobel Prize in economics, for example, they win it about something 
very specific usually that they've done a huge contribution, but it tends to be very specific. But then all of a sudden people think they're an expert in every aspect of economics when actually they might not be. But because now we say no Nobel Prize winner so-and-so is saying this, people think, well, because he's won the Nobel Prize or because she's won the Nobel Prize, everything they're saying about that topic has to be true when that's not the case. Um, and he even shares some stories of that in the book of some Nobel Prize winners who have, for example, endorsed some very outlandish ways of thinking uh, or ideas that are conspiracy theories and very much not true, even though they're scientists, they're believing these very unscientific things. And then, of course, people think, well, you know, this guy won a Nobel Prize. How could he be wrong? Or there's probably something to what he's saying, but he just seems to be very wrong. So oftentimes people who are quote-unquote smart, because they think they're smart, they can lack that intellectual humility to question themselves, to think, you know what, maybe I don't know everything or I should always have some humility to realize even what I think I know, I might not know. But we lose that. And this also relates to the way that we look at people in general or how we view knowing things or being smart, being knowledgeable. And he also talks about the growth mindset. So there's a book by Carol Dweck, Mindset, about have, having either a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And so the fixed mindset would be like, oh, you're a genius, so you're just smart, and everything comes to you easily, and you just know everything, and that's it. Whereas the growth mindset is we have to learn things. If we don't know something, we have to challenge ourselves to grow. You become knowledgeable through hard work. You understand things because you try and you grow, not just some kind of fixed ability. But oftentimes we endorse this as a culture, this fixed mindset that there's just geniuses and smart people and they should know everything. And if you're an expert, you know everything about the field. And if you don't know something or if you have to study more about something or something is hard for you, that means you're not the expert or you're not very smart, but that's not the case at all. Um, and he shared these interesting stories of schools in Japan um, where they would struggle in the classroom and this actually struggling would help them learn. So what we're used to is that if you're struggling, that's something bad. They were actually teaching the kids that hard work and struggle is a good thing. That struggling is how you grow, is how you learn. Anything challenging is going to involve a struggle. So they actually would invite the struggle and recognize it as a strength in their learning. Whereas unfortunately here in the United States, we often see it the opposite. Uh, he was talking about the U.S. and U.K. don't have that strategy. And I think I'm going to continue about the book after the break, and I'll get into this uh, part of the book um, as well about learning. But I want to mention something else about emotions, because a lot of times if we think about making good decisions, not making dumb decisions, making smart decisions, as the book is talking about, we would think, well, it should just be rational and not have our emotions involved. But this does not seem to be the case, actually. We do use our emotions a lot, and we need to in order to make good decisions. So it's not about not using them at all, and something I've talked about on the show in general, just in living life, is that it's not about being rational or being emotional, but about integrating the two and recognizing that they both are giving us information and have different benefits in different ways. But if we can integrate them and harmoniously use them both, that's the optimal way. And so in this book, uh, he was talking about some research showing that people who are better at decision-making, who have some of this evidence-based wisdom, they use what he talks, uh, has a chapter 
with the title, Your Emotional Compass. And so these people actually, they do a few things well. The first part piece is interoception. So they're actually able to feel their feelings. They're in touch with it. They can see what they're feeling and recognize it. So first part is you have to be aware of the feeling, be in touch with that. Um, related to that is differentiation. So some people just feel positive and negative or they'll lump everything as happy when happy could be lots of different things. It could be different gradients of happiness. It can also be contentment. It can be uh, ecstatic, being excited. You can be um, lots of different ways of happiness. And that's actually very important. And the last one is regulation, being able to keep our feelings in check or be a mindful of how we express them. So it's not that we shouldn't be emotional, but it's that the more we're in touch with those feelings and understand it, the better we do. Because for example, if you are going on a, if you're interviewing someone for a job and you have a stomach ache, but you're not really aware of it, there's a good chance you're going to have more of a negative gut feeling, makes sense, gut and your stomach pain, with that person that you might take as, oh, this person, there's something about him or her that doesn't feel right, and that means they're not good for the job. But if you're in touch with your body and your feelings, you recognize, I have a stomach ache, and so that can affect how I'm feeling with this person, and take that information into account. So again, it's not about just having only rational thinking when you're making a decision, those gut feelings actually can help us make very good decisions. But it's having those three things, interoception, differentiation, regulation, that helps us use those gut feelings, use those emotions, those feelings to help us make better decisions rather than having it get in the way or mislead us. But when we're not aware of our feelings, what often happens is we don't recognize that they're influencing us. So we think, I'm just thinking this thing, and that can go back to the motivated reasoning, but we're feeling something about it, and then we can come up with reasons to justify it. And as the book implies, or the title of the book implies, the smarter you are, you sometimes can be better at coming up with reasons to justify whatever you're actually feeling, not realizing that they're just your post hoc way or ad hoc way of coming up with a way to justify what you want to believe because it's more about the feeling. So after the break, I'm going to continue on this book because I thought there were so many insights. And of course, I can only touch on some of them, but that is The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes by David Robson. I'll con uh, continue that discussion after the break. Welcome back. Continuing on the book, The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes by David Robson. As I mentioned at the top of the show, highly recommend the book. I really enjoyed it and I feel like um, whether or not you think you're a smart person, you'll get a lot out of the book. Uh, and I wanted to talk about how, as I mentioned before, learning. He had. A, there's a lot about how we learn and the benefits of certain things that we don't tend to think of as benefits. And I was very happy to see that he had a lot of research and even quotes from Elizabeth and Robert Bjork from UCLA, which is where I did my undergrad. And I actually had the pleasure of doing my honors thesis with Elizabeth Bjork in my last year at UCLA. So Dr. Elizabeth Bjork was kind enough to take me on to do uh, my own small research project. And I also worked in lab or ITA. I uh, volunteered in her lab as well and I really enjoyed that so I was really excited to see her work and her husband's work 
cited in, in the book. Also a book I did before, I think it's called How We Learn by Benedict Carey, if I'm correct on that. But anyway, I talked about their research as well. But um, what's really fascinating about their work, there's something they talk about called desirable difficulties, which is that when we're learning, it's actually beneficial for us to have these as the term implies, desirable difficulties, some challenges that actually help us learn. And so usually we think if we're learning, it should feel kind of easy. And if the easier it feels, the better it feels, that means the better we're learning and the better we're going to do on the test. But this is not actually the case. We tend to think how we feel when we're studying um, is going to be directly related to how we're going to do on the test. But that's not what the research shows. So usually we think if I'm studying and I feel good, then I'm going to do well on the test. But um, actually want to make the learning challenging. So for example, if you have to learn three different topics, what a lot of people do is we'll study topic one for, let's say, two hours straight, then we'll study topic two for two hours straight, and then we'll study topic three for two hours straight. And we think that makes the most sense. But there's actually a concept called interleaving, which is where you actually mix it up where you study, let's say, the first one for, let's say, 20 minutes, then you go to part two for 20 minutes, part three for 20 minutes, and then you mix them up, you go back and forth, because the act of just trying to remember the material again is actually going to help you learn. So if you're learning about um, topic one, and then you learn for 20 minutes, and you go to topic two, and then you go to topic three, and then you go back to topic one. When you go back to topic one, there's going to be a period where you're like, okay, what was it again? And you're trying to get back into it. That part of trying to recall and bring it back what you learned is actually going to help you learn the material better. Now, you're going to feel a little bit confused during the process, which won't feel very good. But again, if we can recognize this confusion is a good part, it's kind of like when you're working out and you feel a little bit of pain, that's about the muscles growing, that's good. This is similar to that in a way. Um, your brain hopefully isn't like actually in pain, but this uncomfortable feeling is that you're learning things better. So I thought it very interesting, um, and I'd read about this research before, that, but he shared that in here about how we actually learn better in ways that we might not think of. And this relates to the growth versus fixed mindset. Because when I'm studying and I want it to feel good, it's that I want to feel like I already know the stuff, so I'm going to do well on the test. And I also think it's related to our test anxiety and the ways we can feel where when I'm studying, I'm already thinking about the test. So I think that if I feel good while I'm studying, that means I'm going to do well on the test. But he has a quote from Dr. Robert Bjork, current performance is a measure of accessibility of information right now, but learning is about more fundamental changes that will be reflected after a delay or a transfer of this learning to somewhere else. So if you interpret current performance as a measure of learning, you will get lots of things wrong. So if you're studying and it says, oh, this is coming to me so easy, that actually doesn't mean you know the material better or that you're going to remember it better on a test, uh, let's say the next day or the next week, and especially hold on to that information. It just means it's easy to study. And I remember experiencing this myself you would just read your notes and you keep reading your notes over and over again. And because you had memorized your notes almost or remembered the order of them, everything came to you very easily, giving you the false impression that you know the material very well. But as it turns out, you're just remembering the order of things in your notes. 
but it's not going to help you as much for the next day when you're trying to retrieve the information and you're not in that same setting and you have to come up with things. So I thought that was really interesting, um, looking at different ways that desirable difficulties and some schools embrace this. They make things challenging while you're learning, knowing that this actually will help you learn. Even if it's actually harder to understand the material, usually you would think, okay, I want to read a book that's very simple and straightforward. Um, that should be easier. But one of the tips that uh, is shared in the book is beware of fluent material. So sometimes when it's too easy to learn it, it actually makes it so you don't take it in as much. But when you have to actually think about it a bit, um, that makes you learn it even better. I actually remember the project I did with Dr. Elizabeth Bjork at UCLA involved something called the generation effect, which is where when you are given some words where some of the letters are missing and you have to think about the word to come up with it yourself, you actually remember those words better than if you're just reading a list of words. So even though in that moment, it's a little bit more of a difficulty, a struggle to figure out what the word is, because of that struggle, you actually learn it better. So there's other things like giving yourself a pretest. So again, because we're so tied into test anxiety and performance, we sometimes don't like to take a test where we don't do well. So we're like, well, if I don't know the material well, I don't want to test myself because I'm going to get feel like I'm getting a low score or getting things wrong. First of all, getting things wrong is how we learn even better. That's also an interesting point. When you get the question wrong, maybe because you feel the emotion, the negative feeling, and you're trying to figure out why it was wrong, another thing they recommend, um, when you are wrong, try to explain it. Um, we actually learn better that way. So giving yourself a pretest is actually helpful in helping you learn. Um, of course, there's also things like learn by teaching, which I've talked about before and many people are aware of. When you have to teach something, you learn it better. Even I get the benefit of talking about the books I read on this show. That helps me uh, definitely in understanding the books better or uh, remembering them better as well. But there's a lot of these different um, tips that are in the book. But this section on desirable difficulties for me was really interesting because the the Bjorks themselves talk about how so many people, unfortunately, they might even hear about these things or they learn about them, but still we're very resistant to accepting that if it feels difficult while we're learning, it actually could be good for us, that we shouldn't fall into that trap of feeling like it should feel good when you're learning the material. Now, the end of the book gets into how groups can fall into the the, um, these traps, the intelligence traps, and how we see sometimes very groups of intelligent people like at NASA, there was the Columbia and the Challenger disasters. And often these were avoidable or there was lots of signs. It wasn't like it came out of the blue, but it can be surprising to see so many intelligent people in an organization with so much on the line making these unfortunate mistakes. And so he gets into some of the details about that. Um, many are familiar with groupthink, where people um, fall into this intelligence trap, if you want to call it that, of not challenging the ideas if they're feeling stressed, if there's this push for um, being unified that's not allowing for dissent and various different factors. We can sometimes avoid recognizing bad thinking things that we're doing that are not quite right. And we see this happen, a lot of disasters that happen. But he also talked about something I thought was important was that the importance of near misses. So sometimes if we have a near miss, 
if you have some kind of safety protocol and something almost happens, but it doesn't and everything ends up okay, we can be very much focused on that result and biased by that result. Well, nothing went wrong, so we don't have to worry about it. But in fact, we should take those near misses very seriously because they're telling us something. And this time it might have been a miss, but that doesn't mean that every time it will be so. So we should take near misses very seriously. And unfortunately, people do this in their lives. We Something happens, oh, you know, we forgot to buckle the seatbelt of this, but nothing happened. And because of that result, we don't think enough about the possibility of that risk. And so very often what happens is when we have a lot of these near misses, we just think, oh yeah, that's just part of doing things, not realizing that maybe we've gotten lucky these first times that nothing bad resulted, but it doesn't mean that there's no risk in what's happening in these near misses. So um, this whole section at the end, the last part is about how groups can fall into these traps and even how sometimes uh, he talked about sports teams too, how sometimes having too much talent or star players can be an issue. And sometimes you'll, you'll hear this if you watch sports about teams where when you get too many stars together, the egos start to get in the way and there's not as much team chemistry, but there can be some truth to that because whether it's in sports or in financial investment businesses, you'll see at times where being in the competition with each other actually takes away from how well people perform individually. They get preoccupied with looking at what people around them are doing and rather than actually working better as a team or um, helping each other do better, they actually make each other do worse. And so, uh, you know, I'll end again. I mentioned intellectual humility or having that humility. And you see how important that is uh, to make better decisions, to avoid falling into intelligence traps, but having that foresight to think about maybe what you don't know. And it's okay not to know. And so I hope we can change. And I think there has been changes, but still in this mindset that we have related to the fixed and growth mindset, but about competence and expertise, that an expert is not always right. An expert doesn't know everything. And whoever we are, whoever we think we are, whatever awards you've gotten for whatever you're doing, it doesn't mean you know everything about that topic. And even if you felt like you do, it's still going to change the things in that field are going to change. So you might know a lot now, but if you don't keep learning, you won't actually keep being at the top of the field. And that's another issue that experts have. Sometimes they think once they know everything, they know everything, but they never knew everything to begin with, but they're not aware of how much things are changing. And there's research showing that leaders even can be humble. A lot of times people think, well, as a leader, you have to show complete confidence and make yourself unwavering in how you think and your decisions. But there's a lot of research showing that the leaders who are humble, they do much better. And he shares examples of someone like Abraham Lincoln, who was very good at listening to everyone. So he wasn't someone who just assumed he knew he would listen. And because he was able to uh, listen to others and he created what he called a team of rivals in his cabinet, he was able to actually come up with some good ideas and did obviously a lot of good in his presidency when he was um, in some very stressful and horrible times during the Civil War uh, in the United States, he was still able to lead because he did lead with humility. And so the book, you know, as I mentioned, even though I covered it in two segments, there's much more in the book than I obviously can cover in these two segments. So I'd highly recommend reading the book because I think it'll help you in how you think about realizing even there's sections about 
how we can fall prey to misinformation and quote-unquote false news and some ways of helping us do that. Uh, For example, talking about how if something's familiar, we tend to unfortunately think it's more true, or fluency helps us think that something is true, which is why when we hear something that rhymes, we're more likely to believe it. And I always think that is funny. Me and my brother will sometimes joke about that, that we'll say, oh, it rhymed, so it must be true. You know, so we have sayings like happy wife, happy life, and maybe that one is true. But um, but because it rhymes, it's so easy to take in, we tend to think of it as more true. It has this truthiness, which he talks about in the book, which doesn't actually mean it's actually true, but it just means because it feels right, it's familiar and also it can be fluent, we tend to think it has to be right. But if we take a step and actually reflect a bit, and that's there's even some tests that help measure that, people who reflect a little bit more, we recognize that if we look at it and evaluate, we see, okay, it might have felt a little bit truthy, but on closer inspection, it might not be true. Or it may be true, but we try not to be as affected by those types of things. So again, being aware of our feelings helps us. If we're aware of where they are coming from and understand them better, we can integrate the emotional and the rational and actually become better decision makers. But I really enjoyed this book. As I mentioned, it did change some of the ways I thought about thinking, which I always enjoy when books do that. So I would highly recommend it. Again, that's The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes by David Robson. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I wanted to end the show today talking about a national holiday that is, I guess you want to say celebrating here in the United States today, but I'm actually glad we didn't take the holiday off with, uh, I'll get into why, that because today is Columbus Day here in the United States, Christopher Columbus Day. It's the second Monday of October every year and has been for, it's more than a hundred years, I think, when I was looking it up today. Uh, And many people recently, or not just so recently, but have not been happy with having a Columbus Day celebration as a holiday here in the United States. And I'm very much in agreement with that. I don't think it makes sense at all to celebrate Columbus Day or to have it be this national holiday for reasons I'll get into. And there has been a push and um, some success in changing it from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, which I'm in favor of and think makes much more sense. Um, But I'll get into just some of the reasons why. Um, To begin with, I remember being a kid and just, well, we assumed that Christopher Columbus was this amazing man who discovered America. And that's how it was described to us as kids. I remember even little songs like, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue to help us remember that it was in 1492. And he was on the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, which I learned in school, but I think I remember that more because of a Rage Against the Machine song that had that in the lyrics. But still, it was very much something we learned in school as this wonderful part of our history. It's funny even to say our history because I think that's part of the issue is this um, Eurocentric focus, very ethnocentric focused view of seeing it as this is history, that even how we talk about it shows that, um, which is where I wanted to start. So that idea that he discovered America is kind of funny for many reasons. To begin with, I actually didn't know until I was researching it a bit today that he actually was in the Bahamas. He didn't anchor 
on the continental United States. He was in Bahama, which was in a way the Americas maybe, but not really America the way we think of the United States of America. Others had even discovered it before as far as from the West in a way too. But even more importantly, people already lived here. And so to talk about discovering something where people already lived, it's such a one-sided way of seeing it. And that bias to me is very glaring, but something that I didn't even think about for most of my life because that's how it was presented to me. This is when America was discovered. But if people were already here, how can you discover something? Um, I used to say to me, it's kind of like if I show up to your house, go in your closet, pull out a shirt and say, oh, look, I discovered this shirt. And then, you know, said, now it's also mine, by the way. And I discovered this. And you're like, no, I've had it for five years. I'm like, no, but I've never seen it. So I'm, it's being discovered. This is a big deal. Everyone should celebrate me for finding this shirt. People already lived here for a long time. There's nothing that had to be discovered. And so that part already to me doesn't make sense and already shows the huge bias there or the viewpoint that we're seeing someplace as not existing until it was seen by European eyes and they settled here. So that itself already shows that bias that he discovered something that was already discovered that people already knew, but it was new to them. Again, we, we can't say something is new and even worse. I use the example of a shirt. It's really like if I came to your house and said, I've now discovered this house, you've lived there for many years. And then I, you know, I don't want to even say the things that were done, but let's say pillaged and, and murdered people in that home. And also said, this is my home now. And then I get celebrated for that. That's essentially what we are talking about. Um, so to me, that already, that Eurocentric, ethnocentric viewpoint is very clear in that holiday or celebrating Columbus and making it a holiday. Now, when I was looking up some of the history today, I learned that one of the reasons why it was even made into a holiday in the United States when it was, was that around that time, Italian Americans were under a lot of persecution. And even there was a mass lynching of something like 11 or 12 individual um, Italian Americans. And so the next year is when they started to celebrate it. And so it was in response to that in part, which I think makes sense. So he was of Italian descent. So his way of celebrating uh, an Italian and someone who contributed to American history in some way and who helped maybe reduce that stigma or that discrimination that was used against the Italian-American. So in that view, I can see it had a good intention and made sense to have that. But I would argue that there are many other Italian-Americans and Italians who've had a much more favorable and positive impact on history that can be celebrated other than Christopher Columbus. So we shouldn't just stick to that. And one also theme throughout this that I'll mention is anytime we say, well, we've celebrated for years or it's tradition, so we have to keep doing it doesn't make sense. We can learn and evolve and grow and recognize that something is wrong or it's not right or it could be made better. And we can and should make changes to make things better, more right, more fair. Uh, and this to me is one of those things. Because so we have that issue of it, it was to support the Italian Americans. I think that is important, but I think we can do that in other ways. Fortunately, overall, Italian-Americans are not a severely stigmatized group in the United States. And there are still some stereotypes about every group, but it's not a group that I think is considered now as being under a huge threat. Um, so I think there's other ways, again, to honor Italian-Americans as there are to honor 
all different types of the diversity we have here in the United States. But I don't think celebrating Christopher Columbus should be the one. He's not even a good representative because there was so much bad that was then brought um, with what Columbus himself did, but then what was done afterwards, I think is very important to keep in mind. And so for that to be celebrated is very hurtful for the indigenous people of the United States, people who were here before. Again, the people who were here before he quote unquote discovered America. And those people were treated horribly by Columbus and those who came after him. And so to celebrate that is to me not acceptable and something we should consider. It's similar to me, not exactly the same, but to uh, the issues that were coming up in recent years about statues in the South that were celebrating um, Civil War leaders and generals from the Confederate side and how for many African Americans they saw this as something painful because the Civil War was essentially over slavery and so supporting the side that was in favor of slavery and then having to have statues and celebrating these people that wanted to support slavery for many people is hurtful and I think that makes sense and it wasn't a good sign for the United States and statues people say it's we're trying to erase history and that's not erasing history we have museums we have memorials we can have all sorts of things we're not erasing the history um, we are just saying we don't want to celebrate it in the way of having it as a statue we don't build statues for people that we think were bad or did bad things it's to celebrate them and so it's actually in recognition of the history and understanding the history that we're saying we're not going to celebrate this aspect of the history so it's not denying what has happened or denying that it was there actually quite the opposite we want to recognize the bad that happened or understand the full picture and we don't want to celebrate some people that were doing the bad things that doesn't make sense i was even in germany and if you go to the museums for the holocaust or for the jewish people you won't see a statue of hitler there of course i mean it's even bad to say it i feel wrong saying that that's obviously not going to be the case you will they'll talk about hitler they're not going to pretend he wasn't there they will accept that history but they're not going to celebrate him similarly with the whole issue of the confederate statues i think that is something negative or for a african-american kid to have to go to robert e lee high school or middle school i think that doesn't make sense and again maybe it was tradition it's been there for a while it's had that name for a while these different schools but we can think about things things also change and tradition should only make sense if the tradition is not harming people we should have traditions that does make sense it does bond us in some ways but we have to see when our traditions are hurtful and harmful to members of our community we can make changes and so coming back to columbus day um, I think it's actually a nice gesture to change it from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day to celebrate those people, those who were harmed. And recently I talked about reparations, and it's a very complex issue to, to figure out how to handle that. But I think just the concept of reparations to me makes sense in the sense that we are apologizing or there's an apology in making amends for what has happened, the wrongdoing that has happened. And until we can do that it's hard to move on at times and so the african americans who were enslaved for hundreds of years in the united states that of course is a huge issue and still we're dealing with the consequences of that but coming back to this issue of columbus day um, recognizing the genocide and the all the hardships that were put on the native american community is something that also i think 
we have to recognize as a country. And I know for a lot of people, they say, how long do we have to do this? Or why do we have to keep focusing there? We definitely haven't done enough and we're not doing much. And we're saying changing the name of a holiday from someone who really didn't do anything special. Yes, some people will say he was... Um, he wanted to discover, and that's. I read some article today saying that's part of the American dream is to be discovering and being brave and bold and courageous, and we should celebrate that. And being brave and courageous is great, but we can also do that in ways that don't hurt lots of other people. And so that, to me, does not have to be celebrated. So there can be aspects of that that were good, but the whole picture, to me, is not good. So I think to change that from... Uh, Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day makes a lot of sense. And it also reminds us to try to have some empathy in these situations, to think about the other side. Um, imagine if your group, whatever group you represent or are from or however you identify, at some point was uh, treated horribly and even, you know, we can call it very comfortably gen genocide from some other group and then that person who organized that or helped create that in some way was celebrated you would very likely be very upset about that and not feel very welcomed by that and so we know that the um, native americans have been treated horribly in american history that is undeniable and so to then celebrate someone who might have instigated that or himself was part of that i think is very problematic and so when we have empathy we recognize what must it be like for someone else to have someone who symbolizes something so negative to them and did something so negative to their ancestors to be celebrated is not a good sign and doesn't make them feel welcome and so and also recognizing how much of this uh, ethnocentric viewpoint is even embedded in celebrating Christopher Columbus to begin with. And although, like I said, for me, I remember being probably four or five and learning about Columbus in school and that he was this one, it was a wonderful thing and discovered America and it's this great thing and we're talking about it in school so favorably. Well, it turns out the history isn't so nice and clean as we presented it. And he might, maybe wasn't exactly a hero the way that we wanted to see him as. And so maybe rather than honoring him, we should consider honoring the people who were hurt by him and by what happened there. And to me, that deserves much more respect and much more dignity and actually making that national holiday from Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day would be a wonderful step. Of course, never making up for what has been done, but would be at least a step in the right direction of making amends, of recognizing something good, of celebrating something good rather than something that actually wasn't so good something that i don't think deserves celebrating so um just wanted to share some of my thoughts because today is columbus day here in the united states but to me it's unfortunate to celebrate something like that and we can hopefully have a shift in the way we view things and hopefully in the near future i think it will happen it'll be nationally indigenous people's day that's my hope and my thought but just wanted to share some of my thoughts on that before I leave tonight, I'll share the book of the week again. It is The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing by Merv Emery, or Emre, E-M-R-E. -E. Looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next week's show. All right, that's the end of the program for tonight. I wanted to say thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. 
94.7 KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.